Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, singer, guitar player, songwriter, and Canadian music legend, Ray Materic, best known for his uh, 1970s hit song, Linda Put the Coffee On. So you had lots of early bands and experiences, and you got part of the music community, I guess, in around the Toronto area. There was a huge uh, music community there, for sure. Yeah, I, um, I lived in Toronto for about 15 or 16 years. Uh, I played uh, many places in Toronto. Uh, both as a solo acoustic and as uh, in rock bands. And yeah. Um, yeah, I sort of made my bones, as you say, in the Toronto scene, for sure. It just happened that I worked hard enough to uh, be able to play guitar, sing and write songs and find a, a niche in all of that where I sounded like me, uh, not like yeah. my heroes, who were also mm. John Fogarty and the Rolling Stones yeah. and uh, the Animals and uh, Chris Christopherson, Gordon Lightfoot. Those are my basic uh, go-to heroes and um yeah. yeah but i had to sound like myself so uh i worked hard at that uh and when i felt that i that i had something to offer in that regard i i made a demo tape um and i hit the bricks in uh, toronto and uh, got a record deal in 1972 uh i worked hard on my songs uh, i didn't get out much i worked hard on my yeah. uh guitar playing and uh, my approach i worked hard making the demos uh, and I worked hard uh, meeting people and and getting a record deal. Uh, and uh, yeah. yeah, it was quite the quite the exciting time for me when I held that in my hand, my very first album. And then yeah. it got amazing reviews and lots and lots of FM and AM airplay. And uh, yeah, I was on my way. So did you have a publishing deal and a record deal at the time? Were you one of those guys that was able to, to get a better record deal than, say, a John Fogarty did? Uh, well, I don't know what his was, but... Um, you know, I got a fair deal. Uh, I got a good percent, and I got. Uh, uh, I don't think I gave away any publishing on that particular uh, album. Uh, yeah, so it was pretty all equitable all around. So in '74, so Neon Rain came out, and then you got you got your hit song. You, you did what most Canadian artists want to do but aren't able to do, which was get a hit in Canada and the U.S. Yeah, that was great, um, and it's pretty catchy tune. And uh, I can't yeah. remember writing it, uh, but. I know that uh, I remember recording it. Bruce Coburn played on that album. He played the solo on Linda Put the Coffee On. And, oh. and um, he played a lot of great electric guitar on that, uh, on that album. It was quite an experience. Was he, brought in, was he brought in from the record company guys? Did they send him down to you or did you know him? Um, I'd met him a few times and that uh, uh, passed by him and stuff like that and said hello. Uh, but actually I was using, uh, at that time, I was using uh, Gene Martinek, who was his producer. So, okay. uh, I, it seemed like a natural, natural sort of thing. And, and he was yeah. really interested in playing some electric guitar as opposed to acoustic guitar. And, yeah. uh, we had a good time. Yeah. He was oh, out good. there smoking a cigarette and he didn't even smoke. 
<laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Well, that's funny. It's funny because, um, you know, Linda put the coffee on is kind of an earworm. It's one of those things that you just get it stuck in your head. And, and yet I, I went through your catalog and I think you wrote some better songs than that. I mean, not that that's not a good song, but it's, it's, uh, there's other songs that you have that are really, I think really good. Well, I've written, that one uh, ends I've up written a lot of songs, you know, and, uh, a lot of songs and I've recorded a lot of songs and I've uh, helped other people record a lot of songs. And, uh, that's just one that uh, went by. They liked it. Uh, they recorded it, and uh, they got airplay for it. So that's what they thought they could do, I guess. And uh, yeah, better songs. Well, I'm, every song I write is better than the last one. <laughs> I'm at my well, uh, just want... peak right now, actually. Yeah. Well, good for you. Yeah. And you're still active and doing your thing. Yes, I am. Well, no, I always wonder about that because I'm thinking like from a songwriter's perspective, you think, okay, I'm going to write the best songs I can, which you do every time you put your pen to paper, you try to do the best you can, but then certain ones hook on and other ones don't. And you, you sit back and wonder, well, okay, that, that, I guess it's that one then. Well, that's the song the uh, record company chose to uh, promote. Uh, you know, I wasn't going to say no. So, um, and I like it yeah. and it did well. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it helped absolutely. me move on to, uh, bigger and better things. And the neon rain, you got the harp. Is that who's playing the harp in that? Uh, Murray McLaughlin. He is. Okay. Well, see, as soon as I heard that song, that's the person I thought of. Cause I talked to Murray, of course, I interviewed him on the podcast. And, uh, I, as soon as I heard that song, I thought, well, that's really Murray McLaughlin ish. Like that's the, the same sort of vein of, of singer songwriter songs back when singer songwriters were true singer songwriters writing from the heart, singing and playing their own songs. Right. Well, isn't that interesting? So that, it, that is Murray on there. Well, very cool. So how did you deal with the, the, was there a tension for you to chase sort of pop tunes? Like when you got a big record deal like that, there's a certain amount of pressure that comes along with that too, right? I mean, you've, you got to chase pop tunes in a sense or chase tunes that are like the record company wants songs they can sell versus writing reflective sort of meaningful songs that, that come from your heart. Right. right. Well, you know, um, I was fortunate enough to work with people that allowed me to do whatever I wanted, uh, for better okay. or for worse. And uh, yeah. I, d I never ran into that problem. I never ran okay. into, Ray, you got to write this. Uh, whenever something like that happened in my life where I felt like I had to write something, uh, you know, I just couldn't do it. I'm not a, hmm. like a, I'm not a, like a sit down and write that song kind of guy. Um, I find my cool in uh, walking with my dog, you know, that type of thing. And uh, yeah. the lyrics just come to me um, naturally. When I'm looking at your trajectory in the timelines, you start playing music in the mid sixties. And then by the early seventies, you got a record deal. Then you, you put out, you know, several sort of high level albums. Yes. And then during the eighties, you kind of withdrew from that and walked away from that. Yeah. The eighties. Uh, yeah. I, I, well, I like, once again, uh, my life situation was such that I could, uh, uh, it was just a perfect segue into a different life, which involved, um, uh, woodworking because I really enjoyed yeah. woodworking. And, uh, okay. so I was able to do that for a number of years and meet a lot of people that I hadn't met, like real life people that I hadn't met in my other journey. And this gave me an insight into their problems and, uh, their lives. And, um, that really affected my writing. My writing became, uh, started to grow up and become, hmm. um, you know, more in quotation marks, more important. To me and hopefully to uh, other people. No, I appreciate that side of it. I'm just wondering, you know, I, I guess you're, you've got a successful recording career. You're well-known, you're playing, 
to to sort of pull back from that, what motivated that is what I'm curious about. Well, you get tired of I the guess crap. Have, I guess you have to, I guess you would have had to have been on the road with me for you know ten or twelve yeah. years. Um, mm. That's what led to that. I needed a break. Uh, I was worn okay. out. I was exhausted. Uh, I had uh, another gig to go to, and then one after that, and then I had uh, you know I had a home life, and uh, so and I was just exhausted. So I said, hey. I'm going to walk away from this for now. And it wasn't until the 1990 or something I even picked up a guitar again. Oh. And um, so I spent that period of time uh, more or less in the real world. And uh, it's paid off in my writing and my overall growth as a human being, my attitude, yeah. my outlook, my perspective. Good. Well, that's good. I mean, I, I was just curious about that because I, I do... I do sort of understand what you're saying. I mean, being in the music business and touring and doing what, all the stuff you said, it is kind of an alternate reality, right? I mean, you're not living in the real world, quote unquote. Absolutely, yeah. And I started uh, in my early 20s or something, uh, even earlier than that. And uh, really, uh, I really had no, uh, although I did work occasionally, I've always worked through my life, but um, it was a different in, a difference just passing ships in the yeah. night as opposed to uh, dealing with uh, dealing with real life problems. Well, interesting. Well, I mean, it speaks well of you that you were able to do that and, and to, to, I guess, recognize, hey, I'm burned out on this path. I'm going to take another path for a while and, and let it rejuvenate me, my spirit and, and my experiences and everything. And then I'll reflect back on that. Absolutely. Sounds like what you did. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's who I've become to this day is that person that is more well-rounded and the person that left the, left the music behind for a while and uh, yeah. concentrated on um, uh, more or less developing myself as opposed to my music. When I came back to it, I was that man. And, yeah. uh, so, and I think my music these days reflects that. My life, is, uh, every phase of my life has um, uh, melded together seamlessly um, hmm. and so I would spend six years doing that and then, and then, uh, another maybe 10 years doing that. And, and then something would happen in my life where I was able to spend time doing something else. And, hmm. um, it's always been seamless, uh, continues to be seamless to this day. And so, yeah. well, what can I say? I can't argue with, uh, with the decisions I made because I'm very happy where I am. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, guitarist extraordinaire Randy Hebert. Randy is best known currently as a member of the Bellamy Brothers, but as a Canadian artist who's done much more than that. So thanks for joining me today, Randy. How are you? Thanks, Dan. I'm great. So you had an early influence in music. I, I read here that your mom and dad had a country band and that you were influenced by that. Absolutely. Um, right from... Right from the beginning, uh, my, my parents were musicians, you know, part-time, okay. almost full-time. But, you know, my dad had a full-time job at, at all times. But, you know, he ran a band yeah. for about 12, almost 14 years. So my parents basically separated, and that's when the band broke up. Right. Uh, but uh, it was huh. from, like, the early mid-60s till about the mid-70s. And I was yeah. uh, trained on, you know, country music the way my parents played it and uh, a box yeah. full of records, of course, yeah. and TV. The family band, it gives you that that sort of training, but it's like on the job training. Here's the gig. Yeah. Here's what we're doing. You just figure it out and let's go do it. Uh, pretty much. That's pretty much how it unfolded when I think back on it. <laughs> Did you have a lot of, you know, sort of training uh, of, other than the practical stuff? Well, other, other than, you know, like... Uh, 
grade four reading and writing of you know musical notation on the recorder and then a little bit further on uh but i quickly kind of just adapted to my grandparents electric uh it was an electric organ you know that okay it was almost set yeah. up like a like a an accordion with the button bass you know yeah and interesting Right. So, the, uh, and, you know, there was a black and white map right there of what notes to not play and what, what notes sounded good together. So yeah. I actually started on that. And then when I switched over to guitar, when I was about 11 or 12, uh, I, I couldn't really hear, you know, I was singing already. And my mom basically showed me the, the chords, you know, the four or five chords. And then once I could, you know, change them fast enough, my dad was a fiddle player and he would pull, pull out the mm. fiddle and he wouldn't tell me the key and he wouldn't tell me the change and he would just start right. and I would have to keep up. And, you know, by around the 10th time around, I was getting even, <laughs> I even knew what the change was. And Right. Yeah. That's, that's a good skill to have. I, I know that myself where you're trying to anticipate what the change is going to be four or yeah. five or up to the two, whatever. And then exactly. you get a, an intuitive kind of sense of where it's going, right? Yes. By the setup, you, you learn yeah. to hear, you know, how the setup happens, you know, you're being set yeah. up for the change. And I, I didn't know any of that at the time, of course, but you know, he was, yeah. he was training my ear and uh, yeah. that totally served me uh, because I was actually filling in for his guitar player when I was about 16. Incidentally, in that, in my teen years, uh, a, a guy has, was recording my parents' band and he left some tape recorders over at our house. So that was another deciding factor cool. when the, the TAC four track, 10 inch, you know, yeah. quarter track showed up and the Sony, Sony mastering deck showed up. And uh, that was essentially the year I, I knew I was going to quit school because I started staying up all night recording and I still have those recordings. But I wanted to ask you about your guitar influences. Cause you list a whole bunch off here. Like, you know, of course, Chuck Berry and Glenn Campbell and Roy Clark. And uh, <laughs> I used to love watching Hee Haw and watching Roy oh, Clark. Yeah. Wasn't that guy just great? Oh, Glenn yeah. Campbell was, oh. oh yeah, for sure. Well, so, you know, <clears throat> growing up in the country end of it initially, you know, that's where my earliest pickers were uh in you know yeah. i was seeing them on tv and it wasn't until the late 60s and early 70s that we were actually getting some rock and roll concerts in in winnipeg television you know right like yeah. uh midnight special and don kirshner's rock concert and all that stuff oh, so i watched all those yeah, yeah for sure i know and <laughs> so but up until then it was all just you know hee-haw and the glenn campbell show and carol burnett and and, and tommy hunter of tommy course, hunter yeah, all those, you know, primetime music shows. You must have watched Don Messer's Jubilee too. Of course. Yes. <laughs> always. Watching Anne Murray before she was like a star on her own yes. and all that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Uh, yeah. So that stuff, you know, and then of course the rock, the rock stuff that I was listening to, my first, you know, love was uh, the satisfaction guitar part, you know, hmm. became a Keith Richards sort of follower. Yeah. Uh, so between the you know the articulated fast picking of country, and the uh, you know the sort of the legato Chuck Berry rock and roll type stuff, uh, and then discovering of course Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. Oh yeah. yeah. And uh, I became you know in I I wanted to do that, so I I started writing in the in that vein pretty early on. So you know our first band when we were teen the guy the, the band that never broke up yet. Um, yeah. we actually made it into the Manitoba history pages and, uh, we're, oh, neat. we called ourselves Ozzy Mandias 
And it was, you know, from the Percy Shelley poem from Ozymandias. And we found that in the library. And Oh, cool. And so we were... We were a cross between Sabbath, Purple, and Uriah Heep, and even you know even keyboard bands, which we never had a keyboard, but that never stopped us from no. playing the songs. Well, very cool. And then and then you were an honorary Charlie Charlie Daniels. I saw you were just jamming with him, although you're not really in the video very much. It's mainly just him doing yeah. his song and, and playing the violin. Yeah, that was uh, again. You know, these things just kind of you fall into these wild scenarios but that's the only video i can find that i actually played the whole show with the charlie daniels band cool. the next day uh but we were in mm -hmm. kumamoto japan for uh what is called oh. the Con country gold festival and and their guitar player uh bruce had had a broken collarbone and he couldn't make the trip so charlie oh, was okay. playing m more guitar and the fiddle and and at the club the night before you're asking, do you know any Charlie's stuff, right? And I'd say, well, growing up in Winnipeg, you know, from 80, 1983 on, we all knew Charlie Daniels' music. and Okay. So I, I knew most of his show, and we jammed it that night. But the next oh, day, cool. we played the festival in front of like 30,000 people. The Bellamy's were next to last, and I just stayed up there, and they moved my rig to the other side of the stage, and then uh, oh, Charlie's cool. show started. Yeah, it's, it oh, bums me that I, I there's a whole video of me with that that in that show but I, we just can't find it so how did you meet and join the bellamy brothers then um that was uh that happened in 1990 when i actually okay. met them but their original steel guitar player uh danny jones left the bellamy brothers tour to marry a winnipeg girl and moved to winnipeg and uh, so all of a sudden we had you know an american steel guitar player residing in winnipeg and he had been on their, you know, earlier hits and all that. So, and he turned out to be a sweetheart and a brother. Oh, cool. Yeah. And we, we met and worked tons together and recorded tons of stuff. And he kept telling me, well, you know, if the Bellamy's meet you, they're going to give you a gig. And, and I said, oh, nah, cool. no way it'll never happen. And then the Bellamy's were, were big stars. They were big stars by then. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. Seventies. Yeah, because so I, I met Danny in the in 87 and they were still, you know, the Bellamy was still riding pretty high on record deals and all that. Yeah. And uh, when they came to town in 90, they were playing at the uh, Cinnaboy Downs racetrack and uh, Howard had to go to Walmart and Danny popped my cassette in and said, listen to this guy. And then they invited me over to Danny's for, for dinner and we started, we were talking publishing and all that. And I'm sitting there on the edge of my seat wondering, you know, what the heck? And sure enough, you know, within, within a couple of months, they, they sent me a contract. I looked it over and I, I signed and it was only a two year well, deal. Yeah. Uh, but then in the meantime, they offered me the road job and, and I agreed to that of course. And I started in 93. Wow. And then by the time I joined the band, uh, none of my material had been cut or placed or anything. So I got all my publishing back. I had, I had basically signed everything I had away to do it because I think, well, better to have a 50% of something, you know, but, uh, but nothing got cut and I got it all back. And, uh, and then I'm now I'm, you know, I've been in the band pretty much ever since. Oh, that's super cool. 
Yeah. Well, that's been a good experience for you, right? I mean, that brings you into the U.S. market. It brings you into the worldwide tours. It brings you into a, a sort of a different world, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a big, big step up because they are a global band. It's yeah. Uh, well, it's that's why I was surprised at that. Like, like Norway and Europe and Canada and and even in in the Asia and stuff too. Like, I I, I mean, I knew of the Bellamy Brothers, of course. Everybody's heard their songs and stuff. But when I was sure. doing the research for this interview, I was quite surprised like how worldwide and how big they actually were and are yeah yeah it, it still astounds us for sure it, it, i know they're still kind of mystified too but <laughs> but it, it really had a lot to do with how their their songs broke in the beginning you know broke onto the charts uh the first song let your love flow became was charted first in the netherlands in germany and then oh. england you know and then the states so yeah it worked its way back into the States. And then subsequently, you know, other songs that they put out were, were all well-received in those markets. By the time the 80s rolled around, the, the early 80s, they were pretty much going into the country sound more than ever. Right. Because, and they, yeah. they, they had more control as they went, you know, over their records. Today, I'm really honored to have as my special guest, the legendary studio engineer, producer, Mike Fraser. Mike has been the audio engineer for some iconic classic rock albums, including Aerosmith and ACDC and The Cult and many more. So I'm thrilled that he's here today to share some of his experiences with us. I was quite lucky at an early age to stumble onto something that I loved and mm -hmm. was able to uh, get a job in that field. So I find, you know, when you love something, it's you're not going to work every yeah. day, you know, so... You really apply yourself then. You're not sitting there watching the clock. Oh, is it lunchtime yet? Oh, can I leave now? Right. You know, uh, you just wanted to be there. And, you know, being there yeah. and hanging out with some, you know, really great people at Little Mountain Sound uh, had a lot of learning opportunities. Because back, you know, I started in 70, 1978, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. And there wasn't really any audio schools around. I know there was a full sale, but you'd have to go down to, Florida, you know, it was a lot of money. Right. There might have been one in LA as well, but there wasn't really many audio schools. Like, you know, I had to start like on the ground floor and I learned how to set up microphones and what microphones to use on what. So I had a, a really great hands on training, you know. But you worked with some of the best guys. I mean, you by the time you got there, Bruce Fairburn was established, right? He had done, yeah. I guess, Prism, and he was on his way to be doing Loverboy and some other bands. So you were you were kind of involved. So you were learning from the best guys, like Bob Clearmountain, I guess, and, yeah. and eventually Bob Rock and that. Yeah, exactly. Who, who was the most important guy to you when you were first coming up? Well, in the early days, uh, there was an engineer there by the name of Roger Monk, because uh, Little mm -hmm. Mountain at the time was basically just a jingle house. They just record commercials right. and the yep. doors would shut at five or six o'clock. So I'd help Roger on all the, um, the jingle sessions from say 9 a.m. to, to 5 p.m. Uh, and then after a few months of that, Bob Rock was uh, just an assistant engineer newly becoming an engineer. So he started doing the, uh, after hours, the uh, Vancouver punk bands, all the punk bands in Vancouver. So uh, I said, hey, do you want me to hang out and help you? And he said, sure. So we kind of became a team. So cool. shortly after that, uh, Bruce Fairburn came in with a, a Prism uh, record. So uh, he had Bob Rock engineer it. So it was basically, you know, one of the first Prism things Bruce had done. First uh, record that Bob had engineered on his own. And, uh, and my first record. So the three of us kind of became a team. So then, you know, we'd do the Loverboy stuff and... 
uh, all sorts of projects together, the three of us. And, you know, Bruce and Bob had such a great career. I just managed to latch on to that, you know, so I um, got quite lucky. Also the personality, how much does the personality play into it? Oh. Cause I've found in the studio, like the, that the engineer is generally a calming influence The producers can be a little jumpy t- at times, but uh, yeah. the engineers are calming, right? You got that personality. Well, it's, I think it's a huge uh, part of, of being in the studio. And I think, you know, some of these audio schools should, should teach a course in psychology as well, because right. so many times you've got so many different personalities uh, and people come in and it's a high pressure thing. You know, you think, Oh, playing yeah. music's fun. Well, when the red light goes on, people tend to sort of freeze or, or they try too hard to make everything perfect and they kind of lose the vibe. So trying to catch a great vibe on a record is, is really tough because you know, when they're playing live, they've got the, the live audience to feed off of. And, you know, it's and it's great. But in the studio, it's really, you know, just a couple of guys in the control room looking at you and saying, you know, pretend there's 60,000 people screaming at you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard yeah, to do. No, it's, so you've really you got to know point. how to manipulate them into being comfortable and giving their yeah. best, you know. So it, there's a, a lot, large part of that is psychology. And then looking at your credits, you've done a lot of harder rock albums, but then you've done a wide range of stuff too. I guess it's like in your business, you basically have to do jingles, I don't know, movie soundtracks, like up and coming artists yep. and then whatever genre, right? You don't really pick and choose that or do you pick one over the other? Uh, you don't really pick and choose though. You know, once you, your name kind of gets established, you know, they get to know you as, Oh, he's the rock guy. So I get a yep. lot of that. And then a lot of the, the heavy, heavy stuff as well. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, peppers in there, you know, I can do a- anything and I love any kind of music. So, you know, I uh, was lucky enough to do some country stuff and, uh, Nora Jones track and, you know, so yeah. it, for me, it's really fun changing genres because it keeps it interesting for me too. It's not just the same, yeah. Oh, loud drums. Okay. Over distorted guitars, you know, big yeah. room sound, you know, that sort of gets boring after a while. Like you want some uh, variation to it, you know? So you've, you've traveled a bit too, right? You've gone out of town and, and done other studios. Like I, I asked you about the Vancouver ones, which you're all very familiar with, but uh, you've gone out of town and, and gone to LA and England and stuff too. How is that? Is that intimidating or you just have to kind of figure out what their rig is and, and no, get used I, to it? I loved it. Once you've worked on a few different boards, like, you know, for recording, I like recording on a Neve console. Um, yeah. API is a good console. And then when I'm mixing, uh, I pretty much always mix on uh, what we call an SSL, solid state logic. So, yeah. you know, when you're going around the world, um, you know, you check out the studio. A, you want to make sure that the the rooms are going to work for the drums that you're trying to get, you know, big roomy drums or a small room, or, you know, so you check that out. But you also check out what gear they have. And if they have one of these consoles, oh, yeah, we'll do it there. So you walk into a room with an SSL, you could be anywhere in the world or you could be at home. Okay. It's exactly, yeah. They're all exactly the same. You know exactly, you know, where you're at, you know, like say if you rent, go, go uh, rent a car and you get the Ford Escort every time. Well, every time you get behind the Ford Escort, you know exactly where yeah. everything is and, you know, it's comfortable. So yeah. yeah, it's not like I'm always working on these weird uh, fangled boards or whatever. And you got to get used to it, you know? Um, so I love traveling. So then you got involved with ACDC. I, I, I think that they, well, they came to Vancouver, I guess, and you, 
you guys had re-recorded some of their stuff. Is that the way it worked? Yeah, well, they, they were uh, in the middle. I think they had a lot of the record done already with uh, with their older brother, George. Uh, and um, I don't know exactly what happened, but there was a, an illness in the family or a death or something. So George couldn't finish the record. So they, at that time, you know, Bruce Fairburn was, you know, had a lot of great records out there. So yes. their management yep. said, Hey, well, why don't we check out this Bruce Fairburn? So they came to Vancouver. And so most of the record was done. All they needed, needed to do was, uh, uh, Brian had to sing on it and Angus had some solos to do. So hmm. we jumped in and, uh, some of the first songs, um, uh, they had done it in the wrong key for Brian. He couldn't, uh, it wasn't in his range, you know? So then, oh. okay. So to change the key, we had to re-record the guitar and bass. And uh, mm. I think Mal and Angus liked the sound out so much better. We ended up re-recording all the bass and guitars for the the record. The drums were done. Oh, cool! But yeah. we recorded all the other instruments and then sang Brian nice. and and all that. So yeah. we ended up redoing a lot of the records except for the drum. That speaks well of you guys. Yeah. Well, I think and that's that's why uh, the guys you know I'm lucky enough to do I think six records with those guys now because. Because I understand their sound, I'm not trying to change it. I give them what they they want, uh, yeah, and and fairly quickly or whatever, you know. So the yeah, so that leaves them. They're comfortable. They don't have to worry about that. They can just worry about what they're playing. Well, those so, guys are good. Like they're such down to earth guys. Like I remember, it was probably that first time they came to Vancouver, and there was a club called Club Soda. So we yeah, used to course, always yeah. head down there. Um, for sure, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night kind of thing. So we go down there. Well, I remember the um, the manager at the club would uh, well set up the you know the the, the velvet ropes and nope, oh, this is this is for the the band only and all that. And I remember Mal and yep. Angus came came in and said, "Oh, what's this?" And they said, "Oh, this is just to you know keep everybody away from you." They said, "No, we don't want that." And, and hmm. so they got rid of the ropes, you know, and everybody's all the uh, patrons are there pushing on the ropes trying to get to the band. So they got rid of the ropes. And everybody comes rushing up to the band. But then five minutes later, they realized, hey, you know, <laughs> you could talk yeah. to like normal people. It all calmed down. So it's, you know, you put those yeah, ropes up enough. and it's almost like you create this, you know, I need to get in there to see the band. Well, you know, yeah. they're just normal, normal guys, you know, jeans and T-shirts. Yeah. And they didn't think they were big rock stars, you know, so. You became friends with those guys, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. Good. And so they had an outside producer when they came in, but I saw you some of the later ones, you co-produced some of those as well, right? Yeah, I did uh, one of the, co-produced one of the records with them. Uh, and For you, know, sure. you don't step on the producer's toes, you let him do his job. Yeah. But then you say, hey, I got an idea, you know, to get this guitar part. Why don't we try Oh, yeah. yeah, that's a great idea. So I know one of the ACDC records, uh, I, they gave me a co-production credit, which I yeah. thought was very cool. Nice of them, but you know, uh, I was yeah. the engineer, <laughs> songwriter, keyboard player, producer John Webster. Uh, John is uh, well known for his time as the keyboard player in the iconic Canadian band Stonebolt and Red Rider, but he's done so much more than that. Well, everybody has a different journey in the studio. Some, some, you know, there's a lot of sessions I couldn't play because I, I wasn't a reader and I wasn't that guy. But when yeah. you don't know what you want and you want someone who's going to come in uh, and try and figure out what your song needs just on the fly, um, that's kind of was the book on me. I, I was a little better at that. And also, I, I kind of have a secret hatred of keyboards. So I like rock guitar. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't play <laughs> it go. to save my life. So I tended nope. to get jobs playing with rock bands because I 
tried to stay out of the way and and uh, play something that you know you get a chance to either complete an arrangement without being too obvious or just find that one great melody and dig in and and hold on to it with both hands and make yeah. sure it's going to get you know, heard in the, in the final mix. So did, did you try any other instruments like guitar or drums and yeah, vocals? I, I was not meant, let's just, no. let's just leave it at, I wasn't meant to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly excelled at your, at your uh, given instrument, which was piano or keyboards. So well, you certainly thanks. excelled at that. But, so I'm always curious too. I, and I often ask my guests, you know, like what was your sort of epiphany where you said, I, I might be able to make a living at this. Well, you know, I, the era I grew up in, it was a little a little after the curve of the, the first sort of wave of the Beatles and stuff like that. I almost didn't get the Beatles. I mean, I, I appreciated it, but the girls liked them, so I wasn't sure that I really liked the Beatles because girls liked it. And uh, I was a little young at the time. But, yeah. I mean, by the time I got to high school and stuff, you were having bands like Heart and Applejack, which became Trooper, and bands like that were playing at your high school dances. So we were seeing Sweeney, Sweeney Todd, a lot of a lot of these bands who had a lot of skills were showing up in front of us every day and go, you know what, I think I could probably do that. I know how to play. And, you know, I was about 13 years old and some older guys had a band and I had equipment to play. So I just started playing and just sort of doing your 10,000 hours of learning how to play Elvis songs and then learning how to play whatever was current and I, I sort of looked at it, getting into bands and stuff is a good way to, you know, not be a geek anymore. Now, all of a sudden, you're cool in, yeah. in, uh, in school. And, there you go. You know, yeah. uh, I got to the end of high school and realized that I didn't really want to go to university. I was kind of qualified to go further, but I'd had enough of school. And uh, it looked like joining the circus or a rock band would be a lot of fun. It, it wasn't something I sort of said, oh, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to go conquer the world. It's like, well, let's see if I can get into a good band. And we yep. can get gigs and we can get signed up with a good agent instead of a bad agent and play the, the A rooms instead of the C rooms. And, right. you know, and, it, and there was lots of, and hilarity ensued, I think is what they say at yeah. that point. And you ended up in Stonebolt that would, cause Stonebolt started in the early seventies. So you would have been real young. Then, yeah. Right? Yeah. So. No, I played with, uh, you know, the, all the, the, the Bruce Allen circuit guys. So Bruce, okay. Bruce had a, a strong agency. He was. I think BTO was his. He had he was sort of running BTO at that time, so the Feldman and uh, agency and him they were still uh, working together at a Blood Alley down there, and yep. they had a whole circuit through Western Canada. And we and uh, you know we would play across the border. It was a lot easier to go down and play one nighters in Bellingham than it is now. Yes, we just show up with our truck and we were you know we're playing the Body Shop and all the various circus and whatever band. Uh, I I played with about two or three Banshee and Flight and a few things. Oh, nice. And then uh, somewhere along the way, I guess I was between some band dissolved. And I remember getting a gig with Bobby Curtola, which nice. seems to be the path for everyone in Western Canada <laughs> at some point. every All yeah. roads lead through the Bobby Curtola band for at least a few weeks. I think I played about three or four weeks with Bobby and long enough to know that Mini Moog solos in the middle of California, here I come, is not really going to work. Mm. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> was playing down at the Spaghetti House in New West, and uh, Stonebolt was playing up at Royal Towers. So I'd never heard them, so I figured I should go up and have a listen to these guys on my break. So I ran up the hill, and they were uh, they were just saying, "Oh yeah, and this is our keyboard players last week," oh. in between songs and introducing them or whatever. And I went, "Ding!" Little light bulb went off, yeah. and uh, I 
talked to the guys briefly on the break. I went up on audition, I think the next day and got the gig. I was young. Every band I was in, I've always been the youngest guy. So, okay. I mean, for me, it was always a learning experience on many levels. And uh, those guys were great because they, there was room for what I was capable of doing in the band for sure. And um, they had a lot more experience than I did as far as the, the vocal ability was amazing compared to yeah. any band I've been in. So I went, all right, this is great. And I learned a lot. So what year would you have joined Stonebolt? Would have probably been 77. It was fairly okay. quick. Doug Lane was still a guitar player in the band. And then Doug left shortly after I joined. Actually, they were they were doing opening shows with uh, Denise McCann. Hmm. Uh, hmm. She was, they were acting as her backup band. They'd play their show and then she'd come on and do a set with them. So I, I don't remember playing any of her songs, but I know that was just ending when I joined. At the time, um, you know, the band was writing and uh, covering a lot of sort of, you know, I think we were doing a lot of Boston and Foreigner and whatever we get our hands on, Pablo Cruz, anything that was sort yeah. of yacht rock. We we're pretty good at yacht rock. And uh, the management had hooked up somehow along the way with um, a producer in Los Angeles named Walter Stewart, who had worked with Johnny Rivers. Uh, they brought Walter in. Um, who had a lot of LA contacts and whatever. And, I, and we cut a couple of singles down at Total Sounds West. But I remember going in there with Laurie Wallace and I think we cut a song called Queen of the Night and it might've been one other. Anyways, yeah, Queen of the Night. Yeah, yeah we, so we, we cut this song and got the, and Walter took it back to Los Angeles and got the interest of uh, Parachute Records, which was an offshoot of Casablanca and had lots of big names, Russ Reagan and a lot of, a lot of large people involved and got yeah. us a record deal. So yeah. from that point on, it was a bit of a whirlwind. We just started recording. Um, Walter had brought um, I Will Still Love You to us. It was this, I think it was written by a fellow named Bob Strauss. It was a little out of our wheelhouse as far as, you know, uh, a little soft for what we thought we were going to be. But yeah. um, we dug in, and then there were some amazing string arrangements put on after the fact on a few of the songs in Los Angeles, I think by Jimmy Webb. I'm not uh, again, oh, wow. again. Yeah, no, it was some pretty A-list guys brought in around it for sure. And then you got to be on American Bandstand and Midnight Special. I mean, those were the, you know, I mean, come on. Absolutely. Like we was... did Merv Griffin too and Dinah Shore. Unreal. I mean, I, you're, you're going, okay, we're really in the wrong place. We had clothes <laughs> designed by some LA clothes designer. We kind of lived a combination of boogie nights and uh, almost famous. That's great. Though. I love it. <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, spending all that time in the, in the Hyatt house. I mean, oh, the, yeah. it, it was, it was a pretty epic time. You're, you're rubbing shoulders with amazing people. We got to see so many great bands back then. You guys paid your dues. Like you guys drove all over the oh, place yeah. in, in old cars and, and bunked together and, and paid your dues. So when you get up on stage, like you've earned it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I haven't had no idea how many times I've driven across Canada and the States. I just don't, <laughs> it's not even, and you know, yeah. and, and it is one of those things. Somebody says, don't you get nervous going on stage? No, I, I just go, no, that's the best drug ever. Walking yeah. down that tunnel and getting ready to go up on a stage in front of 20,000 people is the best thing in the world. Anybody who's done it knows it. It was like, okay, yeah, it's fun playing to a bunch of drunks who aren't paying attention and yelling ZZ Top. Yeah. Uh, but it's a lot more fun to go out there when people sing your lyrics back at you. Yeah. When the crowd yeah. goes up, there's just nothing like that. You know? Well, and you you guys did something that very few Canadian bands were able to do was getting a top 100 billboard hit. Yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. I mean, the business, again, it's with everything... Um, 
if the machine behind it isn't really ready for the success sometimes, I you can't really maintain that, unfortunately. And I think that was part of the curse of what happened to Stonebolt is that we just didn't have the, the business acumen behind us. Yes, you know, at the management level and at a few levels, unfortunately. So the decisions weren't always the right ones and they just didn't have the power to, to make things happen. Yeah, which is which is unfortunate because you were right there. And then of course, don't you hide it? I love that song. And you co wrote that one, right? You got you got some writing yeah. credits on yeah. quite a few of those tunes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the problem, the problem there was, is, you know, we, we were sort of half, that record was getting ready to have a fair shot in the States and the label yep. pulled the plug on the promotion because someone who had been our champion at the label moved on, you know, or that was going up, 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 up. And then it disappeared. You go, Oh, yep. okay. What happened? Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous liner notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.